0: Thank you, Abe. Welcome back, everyone. It's so good to be back in this letter together. Uh, Just a word of thanks from me to you. Thank you for coming out faithfully. It is so good for two opportunities every Sunday and on Wednesday evenings to see so many engaged in a lifestyle that desires to learn God's Word and apply it to their lives, that is such an encouragement to my heart, I know it's an encouragement to Pastor Scott's heart. I know it's an encouragement to so many else, or so many others among us, as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. It warms my heart to see so many people out, for all of the other things that we could uh, we find ourselves doing, many good things. The Lord has laid on our hearts tonight to be fed from His word. And so here we are in Titus chapter 2 again. Uh, By way of review, let me just mention that we have been looking at chapter 2 for a while now and the type of instruction that Paul wanted to give to Titus that he would pass along to those in the Cretan church such that their lives would be formed by the gospel and they would receive instruction for how to live in light of those truths that they've received. We've seen some very clear directions so far, even all the way back in chapter 1, regarding the type of leader that needed to be um, employed in the church, appointed in the church, such that things that were out of order in the church could be set straight. Paul saw some very concerning false teaching attached to the false teachers that he had run-ins with. And he needed, it, laid, it was laid on his heart to communicate these things to Titus such that there would be a health and vibrancy for the witness for Jesus Christ through those believers on Crete. That's what we've been studying so far. And what we'll look at tonight is another element of our lives that need to be impacted by the gospel, need to be demonstrated, um, or need to be demonstrating sound doctrine and a commitment to living for Christ. You'll recall that in the past couple months that we've been going through this, the instruction in verses 1 through 10 has been an outworking of what Paul needed to see in response to the gospel foundation that was given in 11 to 14. We haven't unpacked verses 11 to 14 yet, but we've constantly come back to that as the foundation because that is the instruction that people needed to embrace in order for their lives to demonstrate the gospel by working out the instruction that they received in the first 10 verses. The lives of people in every age group in that church, the various relationships that they were engaged in, husbands relating to wives, wives related to husbands, parents with their children, leaders in the church and those being led, that relationship have all been said to need transformation or a certain way of living based on what the word of God says about who Jesus is why he came and what difference that needs to make we're going to see tonight from verses 9 and 10 another very important aspect of our lives that must be transformed by that same gospel message it must make a difference at work As I look out at our congregation tonight, as I recall people who are not able to be with us tonight, I recognize that a large proportion of our congregation is still in that season of life where every day we get up, we have our breakfast, and we start that commute to go to work, do our jobs, earn that money that is such a blessing to us, come home, serve our families, and it's kind of this thing where we rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Everyone has different vocations, but the large majority of our congregation is still in that season where this particular text is very, very applicable. I wonder if you've considered the amount of time that we take in our working lives to actually go to work, do our work, and come home. In a 24-hour day the average person who works a 40-hour week will spend one-third of those daily hours at work. That's one-third of our time spent working. For that 40-hour week, we see about 25% of all of our allotted time each week given to vocational pursuits, working out the jobs that God has given us to work. And that doesn't include our commute time, our getting ready, our thinking beforehand what we'll do and how we'll do it, our ruminating on who said what and what we need to do tomorrow. Picture that eight-hour window every day and expand it to perhaps 10 or 11 hours. That is the proportion of time that we have opportunity to glorify Christ with our lives as we're in this season of working. And what would that be? 30, 35 years? That is a tremendous proportion of our time that we have been given to steward as Christians that we might put God's glory on display in the way that we work. I'm going to ask the question then, how is the gospel impacting the way that we live out that significant proportion of our lives in the time that we've been given? What if there is a disconnect between how we thought and desired and spoke and acted on Sunday, and how we lived out our working lives from Monday to Saturday? What if there was a gap between our doing church on the Lord's Day and our doing work from Monday to Saturday? I don't think it's too much of a secret whether you've read books about it or come alongside and disciple people, whether it's been your own experience. I don't think it's too much of a a secret that for too many Christians, there exists what we'll call a gospel gap between Sunday and the rest of the week. And that gospel gap comes as a result of not appropriating the truths about Jesus Christ from Sunday into the working week. Consequently, we don't see the gospel at work in our lives. Just as we have seen that the gospel has to impact our church lives, how we work out discipleship from younger women to older women, from, uh, sorry, older women to younger women and older men to younger men, and just as we've seen that relationship in the home must be transformed by the gospel, so tonight we'll see that our work lives must be transformed. This is true if we are to be a vibrant witness for Christ that Paul is so concerned about seeing in this letter. So, is the gospel at work in your life? That is to say, specifically, are you applying gospel truth in your life such that how you engage in the workplace looks different? A good question to consider is how would you know whether it's at work? That's very clear from our text, and we're going to look at how we would know, because we're going to see certain things in our lives. Those couple questions are going to give rise to some very important personal application if we're in the workplace. But what I want to do, in, even in the spirit of working through our curriculum on Wednesday, curriculum on Wednesday nights, to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands, is to present us with some insight from the Word of God for not just personal application, but corporate application. I want to see us from this text tonight equipped to come alongside those who are still in the workplace with some insight into how we ought to be thinking about how we spend our energy at work. What will we say to a brother or sister who shares with us a particular struggle that they're experiencing in the workplace? Well, I think that our text tonight equips us very, very well to come alongside others in that regard. I want us to be further equipped for this as we think of being instruments in our Redeemer's hands such that this doesn't just stay information in our minds, but it's worked out into the fabric of our being as Emmanuel Baptist Church and we can grow together to bring insight from the Word of God and watch him work so first as we go about studying verses 9 and 10 I want to give some insight into the historical situation that Paul is writing in slavery is a controversial topic and I want us grounded in what was going on in history as well as in the truth of God's word so that we don't get too excited about misapplying these texts then I want to see the instruction that Paul gives to slaves before considering the incentive that they would have to obey that instruction. And obey it, we must. If we would be found as Emmanuel Baptist Church and its membership to be obedient to Christ, to be being a witness for him in our communities, then we must apply these things to our lives. Let me read our text and we'll get to studying it together. Bond servants, Paul says, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So Paul is addressing how bondservants in that Cretan congregation are to conduct themselves as those who have been saved by and and are now owned by Jesus Christ. Because he owns them, Paul expects them to be living in a certain way, and the instruction geared to them starts with the word bondservants. That's what they are. Put simply, they are slaves. He is addressing slaves. They were owned by their masters and expected to serve their masters in whatever they were called to do. And that master-slave dynamic was a normal part of the social hierarchy of Paul's day. I'm going to draw on John MacArthur here, because I thought what he wrote in his commentary on this letter was very, very succinct. It was helpful for us. And it gives us some insight into the conditions of life and work that slaves in the first century, that Paul would have been writing to address, would have experienced. And that, again, helps us understand the kind of conditions that these commands were to be obeyed under with all the grace that God provides. Listen to MacArthur as he says, the Roman Empire depended on bond slaves or uh, bond servants for most of its labor, and they were an essential part of society and the economy. Many, if not most, slaves were abused and often brutalized for even minor infractions or simply for displeasing their owners in some way They could be severely beaten or killed. Now, he goes on and he says that not every slave was so mistreated. We should be thankful for that. Some, he says, were elevated to positions of authority in their master's households or in their businesses. Some were well-educated and could function as teachers to their master's children. And some were married and had children of their own with land and a wage. So there is the type of spectrum that slaves might be on as they received this instruction. It, it happens from time to time that when we engage in studies of topics uh, in scripture like slavery, that we become very emotionally charged and, and hard things Uh, and and brutal things from history tend to bear on our interpretation of Scripture such that we would reject the instruction that comes from Scripture because of being emotionally charged. I want us to avoid that. I want us to come at this in a sensible way. I would have you note that our text tonight uh, provides instruction to slaves, but it says nothing about the ethical issues that slavery presents it's, i'll say that again this text tonight provides instruction to slaves but says nothing about the ethical issues that slavery presents that would lead me to say this we must not we must not be insensitive to the hurts that slavery has brought and the injustices that have happened in the past we read about some of those just now and still even do happen in the here and now in certain parts of the world. We must not be insensitive to the hurts that slavery has brought. We must also be careful to recognize that the New Testament never speaks directly to slavery except to address masters and slaves and exhort them toward repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and the transformation that comes through the embrace of the gospel in response to what he has done. It's been well said that the wisdom of God takes us deeper than reforming outward behavior and restructuring human institutions. Our reaction is to change this and to change that. But the word of God goes deeper, acknowledges the hurts, acknowledges the evils, and wants us to embrace the gospel such that issues of evil, like we've seen in slavery in the past, are dealt with at the root as people get saved and go to work for Jesus Christ to make known his glory in the gospel. <laughs> Biblically minded people should try to influence those in positions of power. Like modern day employers and various policymakers, To adopt policies that protect those in vulnerable and dangerous positions. That is an outworking of the grace of God in the gospel. That desires to speak out against evil where God speaks out against evil. If we close our eyes to these things, brothers and sisters, we are not appropriating what God says is evil and doing enough to speak up against it. But we've got to realize that transformation of all of these evils in the world comes through an embrace of the gospel such that people are changed from the inside out and change permeates person by person Our text tonight and the gospel foundation on which it stands is a wonderful example of biblical teaching related to how those who many times endured the worst treatment can still remember the gospel and live lives to glorify God while benefiting others, setting them an example to follow. With all of that in mind, with that historical context and that ethical dilemma somewhat righted before us, let's proceed to look at the instruction that Paul gives to Titus that he would ensure was passed on to the Christian slaves at Crete, those who worked in a variety of different conditions. How should these believing slaves be characterized in accordance with the gospel they claimed to believe? Slaves, according to this text, were to be taught to be submissive to their own masters in everything. We see it right there, simply stated In verse number 9. And I don't think this is terribly complicated. This is a command to be submissive. Or be subject to one's own master or employer. If we would use today's parlance. This command. If it's going to be obeyed. Requires joyful acceptance. As one ranked under. A God given authority. Let me say that again. It requires joyful acceptance of one's place. Under the God given authority. That they've been placed under. And that In every respect, it says in the text, in everything. There is nothing in our text where Paul appeals to some working condition or approach of the master toward the slave. He didn't condition obedience to this instruction on the master's kindness or the condition of employment. (laughs) If you were a worker in an ancient world, this was a command to rank yourself under your master In everything, no matter what your compensation, no matter how your master spoke to you, no matter what pagan god he worshipped, and remember, again, the historical context. For some of these slaves receiving this instruction, they could have thought, humanly speaking, to have every right to say, I can't submit to him because. I can't submit to him because. There's no such condition in this text that would ever give a slave permission to say, no, I'm not going to do that. It's a plain instruction to be submissive to their own masters in everything. And note, please, that it says submissive to their own masters. Perhaps the slave master down the street was a lot kinder. Perhaps he gave a little more benefit. The slave hearing this text that had a jerk for a slave master was nevertheless required to submit to the Lord by submitting to his own master. Loyalty to even the unlovable was required to obey this command from the Lord. Loyalty to even the unlovable. Now, thankfully, we live in a different time and place, don't we? We live in large measure due to the impact of Christianity on our culture in a time, or not in a time, that's God's providence, but in a place with various different laws in place where the benefits of legal statutes protect workers. Health and safety boards, minimum wages, vacation time, all of these things that we often take for granted as common graces of the Lord exist. To benefit workers today, which these ancient slaves never had. Some workplaces have collective bargaining for the overall benefit of, uh, and protection of employees. Workplaces around the world have human resource policies. The reason I bring this up is because we don't typically know anything about the harshness of the slaves that would have received this initial instruction. Most of us certainly know nothing of the harshness experienced by the ancient slaves at the hands of their unjust masters. But with that being said, if you've ever worked for an employer whose way of dealing with you has been harsh, has been unjust, you know something, if only a little bit, of the conditions those ancient slaves face. You have faced the temptation of saying my conditions are not conducive to my obedience to this command. It doesn't apply to me. What is the Lord's will for each of us today according to this text? Again, regardless of the conditions we find ourselves in, you and I as Christian workers are to be submissive to our own employers, your team lead, your supervisor, your manager, and all the way up the chain. We are to have an attitude of submission to them because of The gospel is out working in our life. And we'll get into explaining that. If nothing can be changed in your current working conditions, then you have something that the ancient slaves did not. You have the ability to go down the road and ask for a job at another place. But for as long as you work for a given employer, please mark this, the Lord requires your submission to your own employer In everything. And you say, well, in everything? Are you sure in everything? Because they're asking me to do things that come against my Christian convictions. I would briefly suggest I don't have time to unpack this, it's a study in in itself. But I would suggest to you that if that is your situation, if you need help navigating that, then you need a theology of being fired. You need a theology of what it means to leave your job on account of your Christian convictions. You need a theology of what it looks like to provide for your family when you've been fired for standing firm on your Christian convictions. That is possible. We can come alongside and we can help one another learn what that theology looks like and how we would navigate those hard things. Because let's be honest, the culture in which we live is becoming increasingly antagonistic to the things that we cherish from God's word the things that we desire to proclaim as obedient slaves to Jesus Christ. But if you can't navigate your current position in good conscience, if what you need to do is leave your job, then you need to work through that with the wisdom of God's word. Stay with me now because I want to keep going through verse number nine. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. What does he say next? they are to be well-pleasing. For a slave to be well-pleasing for, was for him to conduct him or herself in a way that pleased his or her slave master, that basically sought to satisfy them in all that they did by doing the best that they could, to commit to their employer's best. Such a slave would put in a full day's work completing each assigned task with diligence to the standard expected, as he or she labored to please the one who owned him. That's what it looks like to be well-pleasing. But Paul adds definition to this in the rest of verse number 9, as he expands on what it looks like to be well-pleasing. He adds not argumentative to the list of character qualities. You see that there, right after well-pleasing in verse number 9. Christian slaves needed to be directed to compliance, to not argue against the commands that they were given if they would put Christ-like character on display. If the integrity of Christian teaching would be imaged forth through their lives, they were to be well-pleasing by being not argumentative. In a culture like Crete, where it was so common to see insubordinate and lazy people, They, the slaves, were to be exhorted to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Other versions of the Bible, or um, translations of the Bible, render that phrase, and they give it the idea of not answering back. So to be not argumentative is to not answer back when you're given instructions for things to do. The idea here is that the slave who will please his or her master... And by extension, the Lord Jesus should take directions and act on them in the way that they're supposed to without balking at what they've been told to do. My parents know a lot about this. Not because they're always bickering, that never happens, right? All of our marriages are finally put together, there's no arguing between one spouse and the other. But as we shepherd our children, we know exactly what it's like for children to argue back. That argumentative spirit. Supervisors and managers do as well. Sometimes it looks like a person folding their hands and saying, you have no right to tell me what to do and I'm not doing it. Or they say, you want me to do what? Perhaps the slave disagreed with not what they were told to do, but how to do it. Perhaps in your workplace, there is a specific computer process to use, a particular tool for the job. You know your job better than I do. But when you and I refuse to put into practice the things that we've been called to do in the way that we've been called to do them, then we are demonstrating that argumentative spirit were not found well-pleasing to our employers. Do we carry with us that argumentative spirit? The slave or the employee would please the Lord Jesus through joyful obedience to this particular exhortation by receiving the directions from their supervisor, from their master, and doing them without argument. Christian workers must not be marked by the argumentative spirit that is so prevalent in the world. It existed then and exists today let it not be uh, demonstrated by us if we would be found pleasing to the Lord. Now, if you would look with me at verse number 10, we'll get some more insight into what being well-pleasing to the Lord looks like as slaves submitted to their own masters in everything. Bond servants are to be submissive in, uh, to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Now, pilfering is stealing. Faithful slaves are to be marked by honesty, never stealing from their masters, whether time or money or resources that belong to the master, belong to the employer. A Christian slave, says Paul, must be devoted to honest stewardship of those things. The nature of a slave's employment in the ancient world could give rise to various temptations to seek out and lay aside for themselves things that didn't belong to them, things that actually belonged to their masters. And again, I'm going to draw on MacArthur here because he gives some some really good insight. Because, he says, because household stewards or business managers in New Testament times were frequently slaves, they had considerable opportunity to misappropriate money, food, jewelry, or other valuables entrusted to their care. In modern times, many workers have access to company funds and property that is easily converted to personal use. Many others pilfer or steal by such means as submitting inflated timesheets and expense reports, taking office supplies home for personal use, making unauthorized calls on the office phone, and taking unauthorized trips in the company car. When Christians do such things, says MacArthur, their actions are not only unethical and damage their employer financially, but also are unspiritual and do damage to the Lord's name and to their testimony. Let that sink in to the number of ways it is possible to be guilty in our workplaces of pilfering. Paul says to slaves, that ought not to mark your character. We've seen in this direction that Paul has given to slaves, that they are to be well-pleasing to their masters, not argumentative, not pilfering, not stealing. They're instead, according to our text in verse 10, to be marked by faithfulness. Look, Look with me at verse number 10. Bondservants are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but, he says, showing all good faith. Perhaps we could say it like this. Slaves be submissive in all things and be well-pleasing by avoiding that argumentative spirit, avoiding dishonesty, choosing instead to show all good faith. You see the putting off the avoiding and also demonstrating something instead. What does it mean to show all good faith? It simply means to demonstrate fidelity or faithfulness. It's to make visible what the attitude of trustworthiness and dependence looks like. Christian slaves, according to Paul, should be the most dependable slaves a master has. Their work ethic, their eagerness to obey instructions, and their honest, dedicated stewardship should be evident. And even when the master isn't looking... The master should know that he could trust this submissive, well-pleasing, compliant, and honest slave to get done what he had given him to steward in order to get those things done in the household. And that even when he wasn't looking. That's the godliness that any Christian worker should strive to display. If you're familiar with Paul's teaching elsewhere in the New Testament, you'll be familiar with Colossians 3, verses 22 and 23. There he says... Bond servants obey your, sorry, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, not just when he's looking so that you look good when he's looking, but when, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So there we see that uh, concept of showing all good faith. They're not only to be working when the boss is looking. That's what it means by way of eye service. But all the time, even when no one can see them work. That is, of course, because the Christian slave recognizes that someone is always watching. The one who appointed them to work under that master is the one whose eyes are always upon us. Their ultimate master, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one from whom all authority and direction ultimately comes, and the one to whom we will all one day give an account, is the one who gazes unceasingly on how we work. And I would have you note just by what we've seen in Colossians 3, that there is no contradiction between what we're saying to be well pleasing to God while avoiding being a people pleaser. We want to make sure that we're seeking to be well pleasing to our masters, well pleasing to God, but not seeking to be people pleasers. In other words, we want to be well pleasing by demonstrating that faithfulness, working all the time, even when our masters, our bosses are not there. We don't want to be guilty of just working when the boss comes around the corner. We start sweeping the floor when we hear them distinct footsteps coming down the hall. The well-pleasing Christian slave, in contrast to that, would be seeking to understand the work given to him, to demonstrate an ability and an excellence in getting it done in every place that he's working, at all times, so that all of that work is done in a way that pleases his master. We've got to make it our aim to please Christ. Maybe you've had dealings with the person or the type of person uh, characterized by what the Proverbs say in Proverbs ten twenty six. Picture the imagery here. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes so is the sluggard to those who sent him. Did you ever put vinegar on your teeth? Have you ever had some kind of substance, some sour substance in your mouth that you just want to get rid of, get rid of it? Do you ever have smoke in your eyes and you, 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 you know what I mean? That is not a pleasurable experience. Well, that's the experience of the master whose slave doesn't do what he's supposed to do. That ought not to mark the conduct of a Christian worker. We need to be well-pleasing models of faithful diligence. Now what we've seen so far is some insight into the culture that's helped us to understand the, uh, the environment in which these instructions have been received. We've seen the instructions themselves. We've seen what should mark the character and conduct of these ancient slaves and us today by application. In our Continuation of studying verses 9 and 10, I want us now to look at the incentive for why we should seek to obey these things. I want us to see the incentive for a slave to obey, and this really gets at the motivation for why we should be wanting to do the things that we've been exhorted to do in this text. I'll ask you to think here with me, not just by way of personal application, but as I said in the beginning, corporate application. How will we take these things And be a blessing to others who are struggling to live out the Christian walk in their workplace. One of the things that you may have encountered as one who is walking alongside other believers are various objections to the instructions, the exhortations that we've seen laid out in this text. You may have heard from people who are struggling, this just seems unreasonable given, the, the, given the, the circumstances in which I have to work. You don't know my boss. You don't know the situation in which I have to work, how much extra work he puts on for no extra pay, how he lets these people over here get away with doing nothing Well, I have to pick up the slack. Everyone slacks off. That's just what we do. That's what we get paid for. You just got to work a little faster than the slowest guy on the line. Maybe you've heard those things. What motivation would we remind people that they ought to have? How will we come alongside these brothers and sisters in Christ that we would be instruments in our Redeemer's hands and bring the truth of God's word to bear such that their lives begin to look more like Christ through the application of the gospel? What counsel are you and I prepared to give as we walk alongside other believers who will leave our company even this evening go off into the working world on Monday with that dreadful gospel gap in their lives that we talked about earlier on? What about those people that we talked to who are struggling with some really, really hard injustices in the workplace? They've been mistreated on account of what they believe. They've been mistreated on account of so many other things. They're not being beaten or starved like the ancient slaves that we learn about. But nevertheless they're going through a hard time. They're struggling to go to work every day to be motivated to work for their employer in a faithful way because of those hard conditions in which they work. How will we come alongside brothers and sisters in Christ when they come and share that struggle with us? It's not unheard of for an employer to extort his employees by piling on extra work for absolutely no extra money. It's not unheard of to have People in authority, even in a workplace, let that authority go right to their heads and they domineer over everyone in their charge. We rub shoulders with people who are mistreated like that. We want to be well prepared from this text to minister well to them. How does tonight's passage prepare us to minister well to people whose bosses are never kind, they're never satisfied, despite the attempts of our brothers and sisters to be well pleasing to them? I'm going to suggest that the last part of verse number 10 gives some excellent insight into the motivation that we need to be exhorting others to look at for the two types of Christian that we just described. Those who are lacking Christian character and conduct in their workplace and those who are suffering, seeking to glorify God, but really going through a hard time. have a misery or a miserable time at work every day, I'm going to suggest that the incentive to obey these exhortations in both of these cases comes from the end of verse number 10. That motivation, as we'll see, is to live and work in such a way as to make the God of our salvation look glorious. Glorious. Look with me at the passage. or read from verse number 9 again. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So why does Paul give the instructions he gives about the character and conduct of these Christian slaves? We see that the reason is so that in everything these Christian slaves may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We've already noted this concept of motivations in chapter 2. If you'll recall with me from verses 5 and 8, we saw some reasoning for why older women must come alongside younger women, and younger women conduct themselves appropriately in the home. Paul gave that instruction because he wanted to see That Christian doctrine would be so applied that no one would have grounds to say that the Word of God was powerless to change. In a culture where people were being taught and people were being satisfied to leave their family lives in shambles, Paul needed to make sure that these people were exhorted in a certain way so that Christ's doctrine was put on display through the upbuilding in the homes. The Word of God should not be reviled. We also saw that when we looked at how leaders in a church should live and lead, that the witness of Christ's church and the reputation of Christ's people was at stake, such that if we were not careful to appropriate this doctrine and live it out in such a way as to remain faithful, shame would come upon Christ's church and his people. The witness of the church would be compromised. Well, here again in verse 10, we look at another motivation. Applying most directly to the slaves and how they should work, but undoubtedly applicable to everyone addressed in verses 1 to 10. The motivation is that we would live so as to put on display the glorious doctrine of God our Savior, what difference his salvation makes in our lives and how powerful he is to take dead sinners, make them alive in Jesus Christ to show his glory. He uses language of cosmetics in verse number 10. Submissive, well-pleasing slaves would put on display the beauty of God's gospel transformation to the world just as a wife might tastefully adorn herself on a date night with her husband. She's done her hair, she's put her makeup on. She is dressed beautifully so as to be pleasing to her husband. That is the language that he appeals to, that cosmetic putting on display. In the same way, he says, these slaves were to live and work in such a way as to take the doctrine of God our Savior and display it in all of its glory. Look at the beauty of what God can do in my life, in your life. Let us work in obedience to our masters, so as to show what God has done. They're to put on display what sound doctrine does as the spirit works into the souls of those who truly know Christ. And here's where I'll have us look again at verses 11 to 14, that, that life-changing, life-giving gospel foundation that we've always got to be anchored in as we look at all of these exhortations that we're, we're given in the passage that we look at tonight. What Paul says in verse number 10 about adorning the doctrine of God our Savior flows naturally into verses 11 to 14. That gives the reason for why we need to be putting this doctrine on display. It explains how the grace of God in Jesus Christ has come into the world and has accomplished something for us that would compel us to put that doctrine on display. Paul explains in verse number 12 that the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. It has been made manifest to us in him. And is now training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Obedient slaves would live consistently with that. By reckoning themselves to be humble learners of this new doctrine of God. And his design for the workplace and be driven less and less by their own agenda, accepting more and more of his. That is what the grace of Jesus Christ is training us to embrace. And here, by the way, is where I would say that we need to be providing as disciples, as those who come alongside one another, seeking to exhort one another to godliness. Here's where we need to come alongside with biblical teaching about what it means to live godly lives in the workplace. Do we have a solid foundation in our hearts about what God intended work to be? You realize it was given before the fall? Work was part of the very good design. Yes, it's hard because of sin. Yes, Adam had to toil through the sweat of his brow to take food from the ground, but work is nevertheless good. Are we teaching that to the people that we come alongside in the church? When was the last time we thought about how sacred our work was as we offer our lives as living sacrifices to God? Let us not draw this unbiblical distinction between secular and sacred when we talk about work. All work is holy for the people of God because we're all engaged in giving ourselves as holy sacrifices to the Lord. The grace of God trains us. And it says, it takes that I'm going to live for me and my agenda kind of perspective of of an immature believer in the workplace and trains his mind to embrace what God has done in his life to submit to that authority over him in the Lord. It trains him to renew his mind, change his desires, and impacts his will to submit to the God-given authority over him. These are things, brothers and sisters, that we need to be reminding one another of. If the grace of God is at work in your life, then it should look like this in your workplace. Let's talk about what that means and why it isn't happening. Now, the gospel changes the Christian worker whose character is lacking virtue. How does it impact that of the suffering slave? The other camp that we talked about. The other people who need our ministry. I would have you consider how our future hope in Christ makes such a difference for those struggling inside the workplace and outside of it. Is there not a much more satisfying way to encourage one another than to exhort one another to fix one another on the coming weekend. Oh, it's been such a bad week, it's only Tuesday. Yeah, but Friday's coming! That's what we often hear, isn't it? We certainly should thank the Lord that it's Friday because it's almost going to be the Lord's day. That's something to look forward to, but we all know that Monday and that wretched employer is going to be back on my radar. I go back to the same old grind. Is there something more substantive, more glorious, more enduring that we can point one another toward as we endure those trials in the workplace? Our Lord Jesus is the one whom Paul says is coming again in that gospel foundation Verse number 13 in chapter 2, he talks about our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. James appeals to the same imminent coming of Christ when he is addressing those who are suffering for the gospel, even on the heels of exhorting some unjust masters to pay their slaves on time. Listen to what he tells these suffering people in his congregation. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's exhorting them to look to the coming of Christ in the midst of the trials that they're facing. How our hearts could be strengthened if we would help one another take a broader biblical eternal view in the midst of the hard trials we face in the workplace. To have that perspective that Christ is coming again when we will enjoy not only the fullness of our salvation that we've been longing to see, but when we will see him undo or bring to justice every abuse, every injustice, and every harsh word from every unjust employer that we've ever served. The one who suffered the greatest injustice as he suffered and bled and died for our sins is coming again to make all things right for the slave who worked for an unjust master. He's coming again to vindicate the worker whose boss is never satisfied. If you're struggling at the hands of such an earthly master, latch hold, latch hold of that precious truth. Not just that Friday's coming. Not just that the Lord's day is coming and I can be encouraged by God's people to look to Him. But look to Him yourself. Because He's coming again to vindicate you. I'm going to close by asking this question. Is the gospel at work? Is it literally at work in your life to help you function as one who is laying hold of these gospel truths? Is the gospel at work in your life? Are we encouraging one another, coming alongside one another as those instruments in the Redeemer's hands to exhort one another toward godly conduct, but also to lay hold of the hope that we have in the gospel such that we would be encouraging one another to put on display the glorious doctrine of God our Savior. Let's leave here tonight with a revised job description for whatever vocation that we've been given, because we've been reminded tonight that our goal in whatever work we do is to put on display how glorious a Savior we serve. We want to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We want to show the gospel at work. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this instruction from your word tonight and the hope that it is grounded in. We hear your word tonight, Lord, as those who often struggle because of our remaining sin. To put in a solid day's work, we tend to grumble and complain. We tend to set our minds on things other than glorifying Jesus Christ in the way that we conduct ourselves. We ask your forgiveness for that, but we're so thankful that you are forgiving. You've given us much grace and even instruction tonight that we might know the way to go. Lord, We want to be known as a church that ministers to one another and we're so thankful that this text really equips us to that end to help us to point one another to the motivations that should drive us, the coming of Christ, the reality that his gracious patience is at work in and through us to put aside those earthly longings, those worldly passions that so often prevent us from being obedient to texts like this. But we hear your call tonight, Lord. We want to be submissive to our employers in everything. We want to be well-pleasing. We want not to be argumentative or to steal, to be poor stewards of things that our employers have given us, but we want to be stewards of opportunities that you've given to us to put on display the doctrine of God, our Savior, being well-pleasing, not by way of eye service, but all the time. Work these things into our midst, Lord. We pray that you give us grace to apply these things to our life and help others do the same as we leave here tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Abe, come. Uh, We will close our service.